According to legend, the house that the members of Love lived in had a red telephone. Although the song lyrics do not relate to this at all. And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends and musicians dig deep into the backgrounds and stories behind some of history's most influential albums and bands, as immortalized in the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to give some history on the band, on the album. We're going to do a deep dive on a handful of the tracks. And at the end, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die this week we've been listening to the band love and their third album 1967's forever changes just to get everybody situated i'm gonna play a little snippet from the opening track of love's forever changes this one is called alone again or kick things off this week i would love to go around the room and hear our tweet length reviews of love's forever changes i'm gonna kick it first to our friend alan so picture this it's 1967 it's the summer of love hippies tie-dye right the whole deal now here comes this band with the name of love so naturally you turn on this album and you're presented (laughs) with songs about paranoia darkness mortality and an occasional mariachi band. It all makes absolutely no sense, but God damn it, it works. You heard it here first, folks. Love makes no sense. Thank you for that. We're going to go next to Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam, and damn it, Alan, you stole my mariachi line. So I will just improv here and just say, this album's great. I mean, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with that, and then we'll dive into it. Wait, did you love the album? Oh, I quite... Well... There's some highs and some lows. It's not all it's not all love, but I think at the end, well, we'll see. I'll I'll save the I'll save the magic for the end. Love isn't just a day at the carnival after all. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, well, actually I'll be last but not least. So next up, we have Phil. What's up everybody? Phil uh Phil joining this week. So yeah, th- this week's love record was a- an interesting track. I mean, I think it took us through the 60s sort of folk psychedelia of Richie Havens and Rodriguez and maybe even Lennon and McCartney and Mamas and Papas psychedelic vocal pop harmony and I love all those things but it also has like a real dawning of Aquarius thing going on and I really hate that shit so I'm still trying to integrate uh, and we'll see where it lands I'm ready to be convinced that this is great though because this is definitely a breath of fresh air compared to some of the other recent releases we've had to <laughs> stomach. I think this is going to be a good episode then because I sense conflict 
in internally to everyone around this this virtual table and i have to admit i feel the same way so my tweet length review of love's forever changes which i listened to for the very first time this week this record is singular and strange part king crimson meets crosby stills and nash part 60s bargain bin detritus (laughs) there were moments where i thought to myself this is completely forgettable like there were moments totally. where I was like, why do I even, but then it, it grew on me. This one definitely grew on me this week. Short enough that I could run it a bunch, interesting enough that I could sink my teeth into it. But yeah, there are spots where it just sounds like you were to do the AI generator of 1960s psychedelic, psychedelic rock. Yeah, I, I'm tempted to say it grew on me, but actually it's kind of the reverse. I think I started out feeling really good. We played the opening track. I said, oh, this is going to be a good week. I'm excited about this. I've never heard it. It sounds fresh. It sounds vital. But the more I listened, the deeper I got into the tracks. And frankly, the more I read about how great and beloved this record is by every hipster out there, the more annoyed I got. There was so much (laughs) highfalutin, philosophizing, pretentious bullshit surrounding this record including from the band surviving band members themselves that it really kind of started to turn me off but let me give a little bit of background and then we're going to go around and and talk general impressions and i have to admit this one this one just puzzled me so i ended up doing quite a bit of research hopefully we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this so let's talk dates and stats this was recorded in the so-called Summer of Love in Los Angeles, California, from June to September of 1967. But as Alan alluded to in his tweet, the Summer of Love really was never the Summer of Love. At that point, the hippie movement had already been co-opted, and the original progenitors of the hippie flower power love culture in San Francisco and LA and other places had already moved on. They felt like like the masses had found them, and In fact, there was a tone of paranoia and growing discontent and the Vietnam War and all these other things and these themes you hear on the record. So we're going to get into that because I think Love is ultimately a very paranoid kind of 60s band. This was released shortly after that recording, November 1st of 1967. It did not sell a lot of copies. It peaked at 154 on the Billboard charts in the U.S., It did better over in the UK. It went up to 24. But interestingly, and for reasons we will describe, the band Love never made it to the UK to play even one show. Well, it sounded like they had a hard time just getting their shit together enough to even record this, you know, from from what I read. Um, It's interesting, the UK connection, though, because I also took note of the how much people seem to love this album as one of those cult classics. And a lot of that love actually comes from the UK. So there's there's all kinds of info about Robert Plant being sort of obsessed with this band and and others. So uh, yeah, interesting connection. I, I think part of what you had right was love was an early an early part of this LA hippie scene. This is their third album, so they had already been playing around LA and gaining quite a following in the years leading up to this in the kind of mid '60s, and were selling out shows all throughout LA. And were very hip. And one of the things they were known to be was, A, they were one of the first integrated bands. So let's talk about the members of this band. 
you have Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles. Arthur Lee is the vocalist, kind of the leader of the band, and Johnny Eccles, his childhood friend, is playing guitar. Those fellows are both African-American, and then the rest of the band is white. Brian McLean plays guitar, a guy called Ken Forsey plays bass on this record, and Michael Stewart Ware plays drums. And I think in the mid-60s in Los Angeles, that was one thing that kind of just, I don't want to say shocked people, because hearing these interviews, the folks that lived and hung out in Hollywood in those days considered themselves enlightened and progressive, but it still wasn't that common for black and white people to be hanging out, and it wasn't that common for black artists to be crossing over kind of into this rock genre. The second reason that I think Love made a powerful impression on people was their, the way they dressed, specifically the way Arthur Lee dressed. So he's kind of credited with just being a very flamboyant, crazy-looking guy on stage. People say that Jimi Hendrix kind of took a lot of visual cues from him in terms of fashion and stage persona. And I think I think they were just kind of a little bit forward-thinking, right? But the reason the UK might have liked him so much is because they just romanticized this whole scene, because by the time they actually got to LA, it was all it had all fallen apart because of drugs and murder. The Manson murders were sort of right around the corner, and that's one of the things kind of lurking in the LA air at this point, right? So it was like a brief moment where this Sunset Strip uh, LA scene, you had love, and after them, kind of their little brother band, you had The Doors. So Jim Morrison also idolized Arthur Lee big time. And would literally like sit on the porch of his house and ask to hang out. And Arthur Lee apparently didn't like him at all and shoo him away. <laughs> Get the hell out of here, you freak. Yeah, I was wondering how long it would take for the Doors <laughs> connection to come in. Because there are some aspects of this that sound like, you know, a precursor to the Doors. The idea that the Doors were so much more commercially successful than this group, I, I can kind of understand it. But at the same time, I don't agree with that, you know, dynamic. Okay, so let's talk about their connection to The Doors. So The Doors were their friend. They were friends with a lot of the people, a lot of big names. And in fact, one of the things about this record, again, they picked up a lot of heat. They they hung out with uh, a lot of the scenesters in Hollywood at that time. And so we're going to drop some names here. So Johnny Eccles grows up in L.A. and has, in fact, uh, a high school band with Billy Preston. No way. And so he's actually gigging and touring with, with a young Billy Preston. And his family was friends. Family He was family friends with Little Richard. So he actually got a gig opening for Little Richard. Or maybe being his back... No, not his back man. It was an opening uh, band. And at one point, there's a story that they actually got to fly to England to open up for Little Richard on a tour. Him and Billy Preston in that band. And who did they meet when they were over there who was also opening for Little Richard? But the Quarrymen. Now, flash forward <laughs> wow. a few more years, they met these guys briefly, and flash forward a few years, and one Brian Epstein sends Billy Preston and Johnny Eccles backstage passes to see the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. They apparently no had no idea that they even knew these guys until they got backstage. Oh, wow. that's hilarious. Like, oh, these wow. Dudes. And then that band broke up because Billy Preston was in the Beatles. <laughs> low right. key in the Beatles <laughs> I think Billy Preston he, he was going places already sure, I think he, sure, I think he moved yeah. on from that, that cover band pretty quickly and became a session musician but one of the other names I was going to drop was Neil Young Neil Young was also on this scene in a band called Buffalo Springfield and he was originally supposed to be the producer 
of this album. So there's some conflicting stories about why why that almost happened or why it didn't happen. But some people say that Neil Young had just left Buffalo Springfield and he was broke. He needed money and the record company was paying. And they offered the producing gig to him. And that he changed his mind at some point and said, you know what, I got to go off and do solo material. And he went off and made started making his solo records, which were obviously... Hugely successful. He's like, I don't know what all these knobs do. <laughs> Give me well, the hell well, out of here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think something definitely to be noted there is like at this time in 1966, right? Producing a record most definitely meant getting eight to ten tracks on a vinyl to release, right? Do you know the people? Can you get into the studios? Right? Do you have any idea? It was. I think it was less. Uh, about like aesthetic, yeah, less about aesthetic more choices. Being plugged in, yeah, was, yeah, to the scene. Well, you're finishing the project, right? Yeah, you're right, and and somewhat to coax the band into their best performances and things like that, right? But but I agree, less maybe of a creative exercise back then. But you're you're pointing out something important, which is music is at an inflection point here, and. Well, we did already mention them, but I should point out that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out in May of 1967. And at this album, I think at its worst, sounds like like a cut-rate Sgt. Pepper's. Like, they just heard all the horns and orchestration <laughs> on Sgt. Pepper's. Like, yeah, we need that too. Just throw it in there. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about that, but yeah, I see that now. <laughs> so, uh... Okay, so 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 a little more on the on the background of the band, right? So uh, Johnny Eccles, the guitar player, and Arthur Lee, who is the singer and doesn't play an instrument, he's just a poet, guys. Oh, so maybe the Jim Morrison uh, comparison is <laughs> unfortunately apt. What poetry? Yeah, gonna... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. But I think this also gives you a hint as to how why some of the songs are so strange in their construction, because the singer because they started as poems. And they would just basically be poems set to music. And the best this guy Arthur Lee could do would be kind of hum, loosely hum melodies, right? And so he, anyway, so he didn't play anything, but he he was considered, you know, he was the front man. He was the star. People were just kind of mesmerized by him and his weirdness. So then they have this guy, Brian McLean. They met him originally. He was a roadie for the birds. So the birds were also a part of this scene and was basically already really hip. And so they just meet him at some club on the Sunset Strip, and they're like, oh, you have a cadre of girls already following you. You should join our band. You should be. <laughs> How many bands are formed around that formula? <laughs> like, and you can play an Look, instrument, too. So, right. well, that's <laughs> you can stand. All right, well, you're the bass player. So the dude uh, <laughs> that got fired when they let Brian McLean join is a guy called Bobby Busselet, who is the first Manson murderer. He goes on oh, to join the Manson Jesus. family and be the the first murder, in fact, the one that helped kind of pin all the other murders on Manson, ultimately. Man, he took the, he took that shit hard. <laughs> <laughs> all right, like, get out of here. We got a new guy. Must kill. What? <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. Wow. Okay, one more thing about Arthur Lee, because this guy seems truly nuts, and there's a lot of interview footage of him. He's, he's a real uh, character, and we can talk about what happened. The band broke up shortly after this record was made, but... Basically, when they got signed, this is just a fun little anecdote about what an asshole this guy is. When they got signed in 1965 by this label called Electra, which up until then was basically just a small folk music label, but they were trying to branch out. The, the head of Electra said he went, 
he was at the Newport Folk Festival when Dylan went electric and he had this revelation that, hey, folk music is not the future. I should get into electric bands. And Love is the first band they signed and they later signed The Doors. But when they signed them, Arthur Lee demands cash up front. They hand him $5,000 in cash, which the electric guys assume he's then going to split with the the other members of the band. No, he he immediately leaves and buys a $4,500 Mercedes and then gives the band $100 each. Dude, that is brute. And that's in 67. So five grand ain't chump change. Yeah, that's man. So he's a, he, he's a bit of a character, but okay. So they go in to these recording sessions. Again, they, they, their previous records had been relatively successful, but Partly because of the eccentricity of this guy, Arthur Lee, who didn't really want to leave L.A., and partially because all the band members were in the midst of heroin addictions off and on. Arthur Lee claims he was never actually strung out, but the other guys definitely had pretty major problems with heroin. They almost never left L.A. to play music. So their unwillingness to tour is definitely a big part of why they weren't able to sell records. And that that was that plagued them you know, through their whole career, including this record. So... Recording sessions, right? They show up and the band is already annoyed with the whole band dynamic at this point because the way they were writing songs was this guy Arthur Lee would write a poem and then the two guitar players would basically then write the song around that poem. But the only person that got songwriter credit was this guy Arthur Lee. And as it turned out, the publishing money was really where the money was. Ah, right. So that's pretty that hundred bucks that they got right up front wasn't enough to sustain them for a decade career. Their first two records actually sold pretty decently and they're much more rock and roll. They're much more like straight down the line. Right. Got some kind of like cult leader skill here or something. How is he convincing these guys to just and they're writing the tunes? Don't worry about that. I, I wrote that song. He sounds like he was a real, yeah, a real manipulator. And he was just kind of the hippest guy on the screen. You know, I'm going to invoke the New York Dolls rule that I think Tom said in the New York Dolls episode, which is if I need to see your outfits to understand your music, <laughs> you've, you've focused on the wrong right. thing. Right. Because almost, you know, without fail, invariably, when you hear people's descriptions of falling in love with the band Love, it starts with, I walked into the club and I saw the first integrated black and white band on stage and this crazy front man with crazy sunglasses and crazy fashion and crazy hair it's like i don't know there's not really a mention of, of i, I the saw music. the future like i felt like i looked into the future right right well that's interesting on, on so much of what we do on this podcast right which is if i come into an album like this completely blind if i was to you know give you my vote without having the context and the history it's a totally different it's a totally different story so you kind of mix that in with like the idea of seeing somebody live and I'll there's this impression off. that you get, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I feel like it would, that's pro- probably, uh, I wouldn't have phrased it that the way you did, but in looking back on it, probably one of the reasons it was such a slow burn for me where it really ha- took repeated listens for me to start to get it and feel like, okay, I, I, I kind of like this, but I agree that, you know, your perception could be tainted one way or another if if you get that visual ahead of time i definitely felt like my feelings were more like rob's where it's sort of at first i felt oh this is very fresh and new uh but the more i listened to it the more d- doubts i maybe had 
Yeah, I think as a weird little artifact, I do like it. I do definitely like some of the songs, and I think they have some... It's one of those threads in music that didn't get picked up and carried on, you know? I don't really hear... Point point me to other bands that sound like this or that sound like an extension of this. I'm, I don't really hear it anywhere throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. So that itself is kind of interesting, but hearing hearing about this band, hearing from this band, hearing all the people idolize Arthur Lee's poetry just really kind of rubs me the wrong way, I have to admit. It feels a little bit over the top. And, you know, I, I also agree that there's really, for better or worse, there's nothing that sounds like this. Um, I think it works in a lot of ways, but you know, Rob, you're wondering why didn't the sound get picked up? I mean, like break it down. Okay. There's the, the, the subject matter is, is super dark. There's <laughs> tons of orchestration that apparently was mouthed by this, you know, guru, Arthur Lee, the mariachi band. I mean, it, there's so many just like random elements that for this to have survived, you would really have to focus hard on pulling these random things. Well, I mean more, you know, there is a line of so-called Baroque pop, right, that I think starts more or less with the Beatles, of which this is a descendant. This gets a little weirder, and that's why I invoked King Crimson. But this idea of mixing folk music and acoustic instrumentation with big orchestration, and it's very weird rhythmically, too, like almost in a... I don't know, I dare I say Primus kind of way. It's just, it takes a lot of weird twists and turns. You know, I... I, I That's re- accurate, man. Good I, good call on Primus. I really like the King Crimson comp. I wouldn't have said that, but there's something about the use of the 12-string guitar, right, mm-hmm. that is very reminiscent of those, those Crimson sort of interludes, some of the darker sort of broody, moody blues like the moments. Right? Well, yeah. That, one of the things I thought when I was listening to it was like, I'm really surprised these guys aren't British. Because there is this line, and this is part of what reminds me of King Crimson too, that feels like it goes back to a 19th century court where someone's strumming an auto harp or a dulcimer, you know, something of that <laughs> nature, or plucking a hurdy-gurdy. There's kind of, <laughs> you know, a minstrel element, brave, brave Sir Robin kind of thing going on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, but yeah, let's talk about the tone of this record. So again, you know, this is 67, the so-called summer of love, but really darkness was right around the corner. We were in the midst of changing from a kind of a hippy-dippy L.A. and and even greater California into a scary Charles Manson kind of L.A. In 1968, we had a bunch of seminal events. RFK was shot. MLK was shot. Uh... The, you know, of course, the, the riots that that kicked off, it was the biggest casualty year in Vietnam. And, and like I said, if you look back to what the people, the progenitors of these movements were saying about 1967 and the so-called Summer of Love, whether it's San Francisco or L.A., they were already feeling like the hippie ideals were gone. And because of some coverage in the press, you know, teenagers from all over the country had flocked to these places hoping for some kind of free existence and just drugs had come in, biker gangs had come in, violence, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it it just, it had gotten dark. And and frankly, the use, the overuse of LSD was, uh, was a problem. Did you discover any place where his paranoia came from? Cause I, I really thought you were going to ask a question about LSD. 
<laughs> what does it stand for? It stands um, for lead singer disease. <laughs> that was a good one. That was pretty, pretty good. good. Pretty good. Uh, yeah, like why was he so paranoid? Was he just mentally unstable? Because they, I also read that he was really convinced that he was going to die like soon after publishing this album so that this became his like last gasp of creativity and the mark he wanted to, to leave on the world, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert, he lived another 30 or 40 years or something like that. Yeah. Or did he? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although he ended up, uh, he ended up doing six years of an 11 year sentence in a California prison on a firearm charge. Jeez. <laughs> California. Yeah. <laughs> some kind of three strikes law sort of thing. But, wow. No, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a super clear answer as to why he was such an odd person. If there was, I don't think there was an actual diagnosed mental illness, but everyone across okay. the board did that thing where they were like, oh, Arthur's Arthur's Arthur, you know, just, just how you know, he's an impossible <laughs> right. human being. Right. Well, I saw references to one of the terms that I thought was interesting was I saw someone describe him as a, uh, a much more put together Sid Barrett, which, mm. you know, I can see in some of this material, some of that early Pink Floyd he didn't strike me as that fucked up, but definitely seems out there. Well, pe- pe- did I should say people seem to say this guy Johnny Eccles? I heard a lot from him, and I actually heard him on Rick Rubin's podcast talking about this stuff recently. And you know, fame is part of what got to him. They were really they were big fish in a little pond, or I suppose in terms of the L.A. the Hollywood Sunset Strip music scene, they never really left it. But they were very they had very well attended shows they could always pack the house and they were kind of like the hippest thing on the block for about two years until like little brother band jim morrison who's basically constantly asking them to hook them up with the record company to try to get their band a contract so love is annoyed with electra and they're trying to get out of their contract and they think hey if we hand them another rock band because this is like a folk label that's trying to get into rock if we hand them another rock band maybe they'll get us out of the contract so they kind of insist and use all their cred to get them to go see the doors multiple times ultimately sign them and then what happens in 1967 the year they're recording this record well the doors released their first record earlier that year and skyrocket past them with hits like light my fire and break on through and that bothered them also. <laughs> did they? But the Doors also agreed to tour outside of L.A. They sure right? did. They <laughs> oh, sure I did. wonder if that could. Wonder if that could have played a a role. No, it's funny you mention that because I heard John Densmore. I think it's John Densmore talking about it. One of the original members of the Doors talking about how they would just hop on a plane and go play like a three night run in Florida, and they you know or some other region of the country, and they did that every weekend for two or three years to try to build up this cred to some degree i think i mean i just remember watching the doors right when i was you know probably a teenager uh, that seemed like part of the the morrison myth right that he could just be anywhere at any time right you just right. show up he was just but just but also that he could kind of he could also would just disappear right for periods of time because he could just be anywhere yeah well, he had a hard time performing, too. One of the reasons they had to get Electra to see them multiple times was because the first two times, Jim was just so perilously drunk that the band just sounded like trash. And they were like, no, no, you need to come one more time. <laughs> so, How many chances? I, I feel like we said that before so, uh, on another episode where, like, how many chances do you get 
act in front of a record label to be like, no, just come back three more times. And I promise you, if like, you, what the hell? If you look like Jim Morrison looks, <laughs> you know, yeah. with your shirt off, I mean, it's, you know, you get a few extra shots. <laughs> I'd come back. So that's why I never made it. Damn it. <laughs> that is correct. Start lifting weights. Stop wearing shirts, man. That's, that's been the magic formula. Start doing drugs. More drugs. <laughs> <laughs> One out of three. I got that. <laughs> okay. Let's let's go and start talking about the specific songs. I have more fun anecdotes to drop in, but let's revisit the first song on the album, which is terribly titled Alone Again or <laughs> such an interesting opening track because like the first five seconds are very major it's it's a very happy sounding guitar and then it immediately goes minor and starts this strum thing with this like kind of flamenco sound to it and immediately i was i was captured so congrats on that first track for grabbing my attention this song starts what a lot of the rest of the songs have which thankfully tom's not on this podcast which is hard panning the drums yeah, yeah. <laughs> which i feel like just about every song does that but it somehow works on this album versus like a dr john where it takes you so out of it um maybe this will play si- out over time right but there is something there is a, i don't know where it is but there was a line in the sand where people said hey we can't do this anymore and they stopped right <laughs> we should find yes along the musical <laughs> yeah well it's, uh, timeline yeah, it's like somewhere. when was it when and it's the right last in this one? spot like we're, we're right in the sweet spot 66 69 right like they're still experimenting but by abbey road people aren't their beatles aren't doing that shit anymore Right, that's over. Right. For them. Well, anyway. speaking just of the mix, though, one of the things I had to check myself and actually go listen to some Sgt. Pepper's because the drums are so low in this mix for such. And sometimes the drummer's doing a lot of really rocky stuff, mm-hmm. but they're so low down. And I was like, oh, is this just how they put drums? You know, the vocals are really high up. The acoustic guitar is really high up. The orchestration sometimes is high up. But that rhythm section is buried in the back. And I checked it against sergeant pepper and some other ringo recordings you know not the case much rockier sound yeah you almost can't hear the kick drum in the mix you know you, you hear the snare you know it might be brushes you hear the hi-hat because they're high frequency instruments they cut but everything south of that is almost inaudible so that that's interesting well, and it's i feel like it's inconsistent too where i do feel like there are some songs where you hear you know it's it's much more rhythm forward or at least that's how it's mixed and then others it's it's really buried and so it, it it didn't feel like there was a lot of you know consistency in terms of the the mixing yeah so we should mention that a guy called bruce botnick was both engineer and producer on this record and it was his first time producing a record the record company originally 
signed on Neil Young, and I think he came really close to actually even making it to the studio. And as we said, there's a debate about whether Neil Young left of his own volition or the band says that, hey, because they knew Neil Young as a friend, they were like, this guy can't produce our record. Get out of here. I tend to believe the first version. But in any case, the record company felt, you know, Love wanted to produce the record themselves, but the record company felt like there needed to be an adult in the room. And so they gave a first-time producer, Bruce Botnick, a chance. He went on to also engineer and produce some of those Doors recordings for Elektra as well. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a little bit of weirdness and, and inconsistency here. Yeah, that said, sorry, I'll just give my opinion on this song. I think this is the best song on the record. So I, I don't feel like it gave me a good, it, it got me excited when I, f- I first turned it on. It sounds like something I haven't heard before. The trumpet solo, which we, which we called out <laughs> and which we can drop in here. trumpet solo was quite surprising but you know it reminded me of another of my favorite bands bell and sebastian Mm, they came up for me a few times after listening to this well in a few of the songs not this one specifically one we'll talk about later oh just thinking about i gotcha yeah so the trumpet part i agree with you rob i I think this is a great song i i think it's i think it's beautiful i love the acoustic intro like it's just it's a solid kickoff song but because of the sort of spaghetti Western kind of feel to it. (laughs) There's nothing else on the record that's quite like that. So I do think it sets like it sort of gives you a fake out almost it's, it's, it's weird and wacky and a lot of these songs are. So I guess it's similar in that sense, but it it did throw me off a little bit. So speaking of it being different from the other songs, this is one of two songs on the record that was not written by Arthur Lee. It's credited to that guy, Brian McLean. And the band was already pissed off, and I, I didn't kind of finish that story, right? But they had internally decided that this record, they were going to solve this internal kind of publishing songwriter dispute by making a double album. And on that double album, Arthur Lee would get two sides of the four, Johnny Eccles would get one side of a record as a songwriter and Brian McLean would get one side of a record as a songwriter. And that's what they prepared for. And then they get to the studio and Electra says, that's too expensive. We're not doing that. Go back to playing Arthur Lee's songs. Why do bands think a double album is the solution for anything? <laughs> I feel like it's... But there was debate about whether or not Arthur Lee is actually the one that manipulated that in, in the background or what. But anyway, this song of Brian McLean's not only became the first track on the album, what I feel is the best song on the album, but it was also the first single uh, they released. Lee must have been pissed. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> so, uh, speak, speaking of that, Phil, so because... That, that songwriter kerfuffle annoyed the heck out of the band, and that had some other implications for the recording process we'll get into. But Brian McLean, as they were finishing this record up, Forever Changes, Brian McLean cut a deal with Electrix. He was, he was aggrieved, and they agreed to produce a solo record of his. They said, you know, you're going to stay in love, of course, continue making records, but we'll also give you a solo contract for a record to kind of mollify you. 
And he gets excited. He calls up his buddy Johnny Eccles. Oh, man, I got this deal for a solo record. Johnny Eccles is like, oh, it's awesome, man. I'm happy for you. They call up Arthur Lee. Hey, Arthur, I got this, I got this uh, solo record coming out. Arthur's like, that's great. You're fired. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> this guy's a real lead singer. And that was the this end of his involvement in the band. So, Jeez. I'm starting to like this guy less and less because I've only heard, you know, I, I listened to a handful of those interviews you were talking about, Rob, where everyone is just like, oh, he's such a visionary and he's he's amazing. And I, you know, hearing some of these seedier details. Are you saying uh, a lead singer from Los Angeles who doesn't play an instrument is, isn't is like the most normal, high functioning individual? He's sounding more and more like a cult leader to me in the way that like right. he's able to put people under his spell and the way he oh, sort of throws yeah. people out also when they sort of stand up to him like the first signs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for those out there who don't know, I am just absolutely the kind of person that could get pulled into a cult. So I'm more and more interested all the time. So That's good to know. I'm going to use that information. Phil invested heavily in Theranos. <laughs> That's not a cult. That's just Silicon Valley, Adam. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm part of that cult. Let's <laughs> move on to the next song we're going to talk about on our focus list. It's called A House is not a motel. At my house I've got no shackles You can come and look if you want to Through the halls you'll see the mantles Where the light shines dim all around you And the streets are paved with gold And if someone asks you You can call my name You're just a thought that someone, somewhere, somehow feels you should be here, and it's so for real to touch. First off, yet another song title that is terrible. <laughs> terrible, absolutely. Yeah, yeah terrible. they're not really yeah. nailing it with the song title department, and they get worse, <laughs> actually, as the album goes along. <laughs> Hard to believe, right? <laughs> well, I, I assume this is a reference to the Backrack and David, A House Is Not A Home. I don't know if you guys have heard that, like mm-hmm. Dion Warwick. Uh, there was some beef one. there where he co- he covered it, but he changed it so much that Backrack got pissed or something like that. He changed the chord pattern or... Oh, I don't know. I, that No, I, I didn't mean it was a cover. I just meant it was like a reference uh, to that song title, maybe. Yeah, I, I thought I read something that uh, uh, they he had covered, yeah, Burt Backrack's song, but it changed it so much that, that Backrack was pissed. And there was a little little tension there. I, I heard, I remember reading that about Thelonious Monk's approach to songwriting. He'd be just like, take an old song you like, then change the melody, and then just change the chords underneath that. Now you got a new song. <laughs> you got a new song? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. I'm going to use that tonight on this album. All right, guys, I'm going to have a... Uh... <laughs> And he's, it's, he's it's kind a of fresh right. track you know, tomorrow. It's a little ship of Theseus it is kind true. of problem. Yeah. He's like, hey, I got this new project. It's called Hate. <laughs> it's <laughs> great. <laughs> Forever keeps... What did you yeah. guys think about this song, though? I thought this song had the most directly influenced The Doors. I Actually, my note was, if The Doors were better, it might sound like this. <laughs> I also listened to the parts of that Rick Rubin interview with Johnny Eccles. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is this a song he talks about where he he did two guitar solos like over top of each other. And one of them, he couldn't hear... Like his headphones were fucked up, so he couldn't hear the first one. 
So he's really doing the second solo blind and they kind of like mashed them together. Is that? Yes. Yeah. That's this song. We can, let's drop in a piece of the two guitar solos. Yeah, I thought that part was a little... I don't know if two guitar solos happening, one in each ear is normal, but I... I you kidding me? Tony, Tony Iommi based a career <laughs> on that sound. Say, it sounded like Black Sabbath. Yeah, totally. This is classic guitar player BS, by the way. It's like, oh, one solo didn't do the trick? Just add another one on top I, I, of it. Yeah, that's true. I agree. Just hard pan those fuckers. And I, I, I'm not... To be clear, I'm not above it at all. I am just saying that that's what you do when you're like first solo didn't make the grade just add something on top yeah. don't even need to listen to the first one who do you think I am Mark Knopfler maybe, maybe he gets paid per solo <laughs> I, I thought it was a cool song though in general I mean again kind of weird um, the this song in particular seems obvious to me now that he was just lyrics only and then the music had to sort of fall in line with that because the lyrics in this song are, are, are kind of, kind of weird. Yeah. He, he gets all this credit for being this amazing prophetic lyricist. And, and actually even the term, this connection to Jim Morrison, I heard someone in very pretentious fashion call Arthur Lee, the John the Baptist to Jim Morrison's antichrist Jesus. But I don't get it at all. I think Jim Morrison, I don't even like Jim Morrison's lyrics that much, but these lyrics are worse. In this metaphor, who is Bob Dylan? <laughs> like, where does he fit in? Because like Bob Dylan 1967 is just slaying it, right? Like It's like Masters of War. This is only, this is pure cult leader uh, lane. This is not. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. This is not Nobel Laureate. Thank <laughs> okay, yeah, right. you. Sorry. How are, I, so we talked about Dylan though, doing the thing where it's just, gibberish and then he drops in one line that kind of knocks you out i thought that this had one of those at least i liked the line which was the news today will be the movies of tomorrow i was like that's a, that was a good line. Pretty cool I line i thought that was yeah. cool yeah i think this one was one of the ones that was kind of directly about vietnam he's talking about blood transfusions right. and he i heard this that uh they heard from a soldier who had come back from vietnam this line about when blood mixes with mud it turns to gray so that's where that line comes from, too. It's pretty heavy. I Getting back to the, the guitar solo sound. So when did this sound emerge? Again, because I you can jump forward whatever would be seven years and you hear, I mean, this really could be, you know, a kind of shitty Sabbath solo. But like that, that sound of the guitar fill from like a guitar player standpoint, you know, wh when did that type of fuzz come into the picture? Because I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, I'm thinking to like the Beatles, they weren't very overdriven. The birds didn't have a lot of these. I know, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash, but that's even later. So, yeah. Yeah. So you've got the fuzz face and the tone bender that probably would have come out around like 65 or 66. Because um, like Hendrix was definitely using those. So I, I just on terms of tone, but that's also about hitting the market. Yeah. Just on terms of tone, though, I happen to know, because I heard Johnny Eccles speak about it, that he used no effects. It was pure AC30, Vox AC30 amp, just cranked. And wow. that, was, that was one of the reasons he couldn't do that second solo in the booth and solve the headphone problem of hearing the other thing, because he needed the amp to be really loud. 
And so he even he even commented, had some self-awareness that he was like, Hendrix came along sort of very shortly after us, and he adopted technology in a way that I was unwilling to do. And that is what elevated him. Ah, so he was a purist and like just crank my amp versus let me use a fuzz face. The fuzz something. face came out in 66. I just looked up. Ah, so right around ah, this that's time. That's interesting. But okay. you still have some people wanting to embrace that and some people going like, what's the point? That's just uh, bells and whistles. It's not the real thing. And mm-hmm. at least according to Johnny Eccles, I don't know all the stuff that Hendrix used. Obviously, he used the wah-wah pedal to great effect. But I know that Eccles said like he didn't, he didn't, kin to any of that stuff well i think over the backdrop of what's mostly acoustic music you know maybe there's a thought at the time where it's like is that taking this too far like is that is that contrast with the rest of the album too much you know um because it's it's there's so much acoustic 12 string there's 12 string solos i think in on this album that yeah there's not a ton of electric on here i mean there's just like the solos there's a couple solos right yeah but i would just say that is true but I would say they're not afraid of contrast. Like, that is true. A lot of <laughs> mashup, sure. yeah, yeah. you know, right. <laughs> conflicting ideas here. But yeah, I, I mean, in my opinion, the guitar playing is fairly forward thinking for, for mm-hmm. when it's happening and what it is. So I would agree with that. My only other note is that this song was the first spot where he introduced himself singing out of key <laughs> on the album. This one, <laughs> Who are you calling my name? I'm like, come on, dude. He spent 64 hours on this album. You couldn't have just thrown an extra half hour in to just recut that. Hey, at least he got to track number two. I mean, that's... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Sorry, lead singer. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, no, because I think the first one is led by Brian McLean, and then Arthur Lee's just singing backups on it. Okay. That, mm. that, this is tracking. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on to yet another terrible song title. <laughs> End more again. No space. <laughs> and if you see and more again, then you will know and more again. For you can see you in her eyes. Then you feel your heart beating from bum bum. When you've given all you had and everything I don't know if you guys heard this, but I have a fun little anecdote about these recording sessions. So as I mentioned, the band had internally, they thought, agreed that they were going to go in and record the two guitar players' compositions, and they were prepared for that, and it was going to be this double album. Then they kind of just get to the studio, and they're very disappointed. This, this, the record company says, no, it's not happening. And then they start the sessions, and they suck. (laughs) So, and we'll talk about why in a second, because there's conflicting reports of why they suck. But they were abjectly terrible. And so, Bruce, God, I wish there were there were recordings of this. Some masters laying around. So I saw a clip of that guy Bruce Botnick, the producer. He's like, "Yeah, I fired the band, and I called in the wrecking crew, as one does." (laughs) Yes. And the re- You're right, they're in LA. And yeah. the Wrecking Crew came in and played on a few songs. They played like half a day. They knocked out at least two of the songs. This is one of them. So this song is the Wrecking Crew as as the rhythm section. Hal Blaine on drums, Carol Kay on bass. 
And apparently that really upset the band so much to still sit back and watch the Wrecking Crew. Didn't they make the other band like watch the Wrecking Crew play this as like some some <laughs> form of like shaming ritual? <laughs> right, right, right. See how much you guys suck. <laughs> so then, so then they were like, okay, give we could do this. Give us another chance. And they left for like a week to continue rehearsing and came back. But this is one of the two songs that remained on the record as a Wrecking Crew track. Oh, wow. That does make sense because even before I knew that tidbit as well, I paused when I got to this song and I, I didn't think this song was great. It was a little too kind of Simon and Garfunkel-ish for me, but I did feel like it felt more put together, which makes perfect sense now knowing that it was great session musicians. <laughs> so was it was it that they sucked or they just weren't together like they didn't know the songs because you can't just go away for a week and be like hey guys we we can't play our instruments so let's do a week of I'm not sure who to believe in this case because okay, okay. the band you know you hear two different things you hear either they were just totally unprepared because they were already in fighting and didn't have good chemistry and had, just hadn't prepared enough or that the band everyone who wasn't Arthur Lee was so mad at Arthur Lee that they were like, we're not going to give it our best. We're just going to, uh, okay. we're not going to support his songs. We're just going to let the guy who doesn't play an instrument, tell us what to play. And if he doesn't tell us to play it, we're not going to do it. Like not fulfill the role they had been fulfilling. Cause they were pissed off at him. A third option would be heroin, <laughs> which was yeah. a real problem. And little fun anecdote of after this record was released, they did, a couple shows outside of L.A., but they really had a hard time keeping the tour together. I think they went to New York for a quick residency and maybe played a couple shows in the area. But the band pretty quickly disintegrated after that, where to the point where in 1968, Johnny Eccles, the guitar player, and the bass player Ken Forsey broke into the rehearsal space of the band they were no longer a part of, stole all the instruments, and sold them for junk. Oh, <laughs> God. Holy crap. Okay, That's but a... back to this song. I think this song is friggin' <laughs> terrible. This, I don't know what is going on with this vocal approach. And arm. It just sounds like a frog. It's, yeah, the melody line's un- uncompelling. and It's so strange rhythmically that I'm glad they had this anchor of sick studio musicians to anchor it. But then they, of course, put vocals and acoustic guitars on it. And some of these acoustic guitar fills, they just... It's just not very well-played acoustic guitar, in my opinion. 100%. Well, here's where I start to, at this point in the album or in in the conversation, really get a bit aggrieved by the fanfare over this album because this song is... I, I saw countless references to this song specifically among a few of the others we've already talked about as being like one of the best songs ever and one of the songs you should listen to, you know, before you die and... I don't, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing that connection. <laughs> this wouldn't make the seaside of a Simon and Garfunkel release. <laughs> this had one of the most egregious opportunities that was not taken. If you go to 127 and listen through. And you don't know how much I love you. Oh, oh. 
there's such an opportunity for them to modulate, to change the key. Like they're lining it up, they're lining it up, and you're waiting as a listener. You're like, oh, here comes finally something for me to sink my teeth into. Here comes a keychain, and it goes right back to where it was. Such a, uh, so anticlimactic. Baroque snoozeville. And instead, you get the really, you get that weird auto harp, crappy sound, right. you know, like like 19th century English court entertainment it's like well this is the opposite of what i wanted exactly yeah this one was a pass for me at this point in the record i started to get a little weary and i I agree with everything alan said and fans of uh, love that are listening it only gets worse from here (laughs) on to the next song on our focus list the red telephone sitting on the hillside Watching all the people die I'll feel much better on the other side of the road I believe in magic Why? Because it is so I don't need power when I'm hypnotized. The title sounds like a Hardy Boys book. <laughs> <laughs> this is just And More Again Part 2, right? <laughs> yes, I thought that this sounded exactly like something else on the album. All right, I'm not crazy. I hate the vocal delivery of the word magic. And quick that thing where they <laughs> zoom in and then like punch it it's so that's a very tom out of it. comment i feel like <laughs> to hate Magic. something that specific <laughs> so silly and speaking of the great poet the prophetic poet up on the mount listen to these lyrics look in my eyes what are you seeing how do you feel i'll feel real phony when my name is phil <laughs> What the fuck's he saying? What's he trying to say? No, <laughs> no. But then the follow-up line is something about Bill. So yeah, it was like Bill or Bill. Another name, another name for the rhyme. Let's what are on, we dude. talking about? I, listen, we can all agree that Wikipedia is pretty silly sometimes. But the best thing I read in Wikipedia was this. For some reason, this song has its own Wikipedia page, and one of the lines <laughs> is, that, "According to legend, the house that the members of Love lived in had a red telephone." Although the song lyrics do not relate to this at all. Close a file on that one. (laughs) That's all ridiculous. Everything we just talked about. However, I really like this song. Like, I think it's... It it's it has this like really haunting vibe for me that all, all the themes that we're talking about as far as like, you know, paranoia and mortality and all that stuff, to me, I feel like that is all distilled into this song as ridiculous as it is there's just something about it that was very evocative of like a haunting type of feeling where i almost felt like i was like like i was on mushrooms or something but it was going kind of wonky i don't know (laughs) i i really like the song really so (laughs) this this is a song where i was listening to this in the car with my wife couple days ago and she normally doesn't comment at all on music even the music i make she's kind of stays pretty silent but she oh no 
she goes, hey, listen, I know you're listening to this for the podcast, like basically for work. So you don't need to turn it off or anything. But this is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Fair enough. I'll remember that next time I see her. I I will defend... I'll defend Alan's standpoint a little bit. I think that if the song had started at 147, it would be a lot better. Let's drop that here. Sometimes my life is so eerie. And if you think I'm happy, paint me yellow. So there's a nice swell of strings where something actually happens. It's it's a relatively engaging string line. And I feel like if the song had started there, it would be a little more redeemable. Although, uh, again, now I'll go against myself and I'll say that the, the ahs at the end of the song are so sour and off key that it it hurt me. It hurt my soul a little bit. So that was, that was a little rough getting through the end of this one. It just felt, and to me, this this song kind of typified what I saw as the main problem of the record, is that there were a lot of interesting ideas, and they were definitely different. Like, it's definitely singular, right? But it goes on too long, and it just feels like they threw everything at the wall, whether, and didn't really have a filter, filtration mechanism for what was working and what, what wasn't. Yeah, that's very fair. Is this, this has the spoken, spoken word yes. part at the end, yes, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. I actually... I kind of liked that. I, I kind of always liked thought, those. I'm a real sucker for that moody booze bullshit. Yeah. I did too. It, it sounded a bit nursery rhyme. Be- and because the the chord pattern at the end was just major, minor. Ma- same chord, major, minor, as they were kind of doing this talking, which I, I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, a, a little nursery rhymey, but but I thought it actually worked in the outro. So the one thing, one compliment I'll give it, which I just, because I like stuff like this, is he has the line, if you think I'm happy, paint me. And then on one side, it says white. And on the other side, it says yellow. That was freaky, yeah. Now, I don't, they say both, right? They say both at the same time yeah. in different ears. And it's just a little bit of a weird thing. And I assume he's talking at least partially about race and the, you know the race of the folks in Vietnam that were fighting. I heard that it might also be a reference to the yellow smiley face that was kind of a symbol of the hippie movement. Ah, but either way, it did yeah. kind of snap me out of my my stupor when that part came on when I was actively listening. I like little tricks like that. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's move on to yet another song with a terrible title, Live and Let Live. Oh, the snot has caked against my pants. It has turned into crystal There's a bluebird sitting on a branch I guess I'll take my pistol I've got it in my hand Because he's on my land And so the story ended You, you know it all so well Oh shit, you need I'll tell you this song was where I picked up the Bell and Sebastian. To me, I I wrote down this is Bell and Sebastian meets the Smiths, where just is a little upbeat, you know, kind of catchy, but 
fell pretty flat for me to be honest i kind of like this song see i'm on the other side of this one for me i i agree this one does feel like sort of a weird departure on the record but this is this is one of the ones that i don't know just felt more i don't know something about it resonated with me i like this one a bit better too but i think the lyrics are laughably stupid and i heard this one particularly lauded as this great forward-thinking poem tone poem about vietnam and the, i just i don't buy that at all and i have to say i think i think more part of my problem i already mentioned it is arthur lee's vocal delivery he just sounds so overly performative and proper like he's doing shakespeare in high school or something that just kind it's of hacky it's hacky yeah. it takes it down a notch for me but i do i do like the kind of the construction of the song overall well, here's what I'm wondering, though. Like we, I think we've talked a lot about this being overrated or, or you know, not worthy of probably the the cult praise that it gets. But like, why is that? What is it that I'm on the record saying that I like this album? But it's hard for me to visualize what is so groundbreaking about it, or what has given it that like retrospective adulation. Is it that this was super experimental, or why why this? I think the experimental aspect is definitely a part of it. And I think it was, some people see it as America's answer to the experimentation of the Beatles in the studio. And at a time when there wasn't as much of that going on in America and in California, even with... When did Pet Sounds come out? uh, The year before this. (laughs) Right. Oh, wait. All right. Theory debunked. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think McCartney's Live and Let Die is a love diss? <laughs> diss tracks. <laughs> I think Albert Broccoli wrote that for him. Right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh, James Bond guy? Yeah, because it was he wrote that for a James Bond movie. Sure. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That makes sense. Roger Moore? So I think they gave that one of the, the Roger Moore ones? Yeah, it's a Roger mm, Moore. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about the guitar solo at 408? Sure. We could drop that here. So uh, this is like the most 1960s solo I've ever heard. I, all these people knew Hendrix. Couldn't they have just called in a favor and just had him come in and play for 10 seconds? Because this is just terrible. Uh, it's like straight man. out of sympathy from the devil. Yeah, well, there. I feel like all like I can't say all because it's a decade, but any like 1960s non pentatonic non blues guitar solo kind of sucked (laughs) (laughs) they just didn't know what they were doing it's just so odd i think the fact that this exists in the same universe as hendrix makes it suck i think it wouldn't be so bad but came out earlier this year right you've seen what it can be (laughs) (laughs) right you you've seen what this guitar can do oh and they're could you imagine going to a show where like you know i would imagine a a, an up-and-comer Jimi hendrix would open for say love in LA must have been a weird transition and they, they would have just fallen into the fl- the hole that they had burned into the floor <laughs> yeah i didn't 
I didn't research, understandably, I didn't research a lot of Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix experience and their story because I know they got their start in London, right? Hendrix went over to England and that's where he met Noel Redding and Mitch Mitch Mitchell and put together that band. But maybe they were back in the States at this point. Unclear. Don't know if he saw love. I, I You know, anyway, people say that he was influenced by Arthur Lee's sort of fashion sense and things like that. But okay, I think we've waxed on about love plenty long now all that remains is for us to take a vote is love's forever changes something that you must hear before you die alan i i say yes and i again i'm beating a dead horse here it, it's nowhere near worthy of the i've seen this in you know i'm, I'm talking like youtube comments and user reviews many 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 people saying literally this is the best album of all time and that's ludicrous but i think it's really unique there is really nothing like this i'll play it again you know i i might need to let this one like sit on the shelf for a bit but i'll definitely pop this one on again and i do think it's worth the listen um what's it 41 minutes you know what else you can do with 41 minutes (laughs) <laughs> 40 minutes you could listen to part of a spiritualized album oh, God. all right so <laughs> one sweet right blue so this is this album is at times so of an era namely the 60s and at other times it's unlike anything else i've i've heard at times it's mediocre there are flashes of genius and this one is going to squeak by but i'm gonna say yes i think you need to hear this before you die so it, it's a yes for me but but uh, uh, Rob and Phil, you, you guys <laughs> did a did a decent job of almost convincing me to go the other well, way. I, Not that you were trying to convince me, but just listening to your thoughts, I was kind of leaning. But then I brought it back. Yeah, I mean, I came into the, that, was, that was a yes, right, Adam? That was a just yes after sure a bunch of wanna, qualifying. Yeah, well, I, I was making sure I, because I'm jumping in, and I, you know, you know how to. How Phil wants to know what kind of leverage he has. <laughs> 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 right. No. no uh, Oddly, and oddly, I do think is the right word. I'm also going to give this a yes. This sort of this, this sort of gets, and Alan, I think you said it well with John Mart, or, or yeah, you said it well. Like, I'll listen to this again. It reminded me of John, was it John Martin? John Martin. John Martin, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. that record also, like very of an era and sort of like, you know, maybe if I listen to it 10 times, I'll realize, like, I hate this. I can't ever listen to this again. But for the same reason, I'll say yes to this is why I say no to Devendra Bonhart which is like this does have a background quality element right it has like a world music element so you gotta ignore it if you want to right like you can listen at it or or past it um and and for that reason you know i'll take the old furniture music over the new furniture music <laughs> so <laughs> Ikea's wow. praise. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes yes i'll i'll give love's uh I'll give love forever changes. Uh, Yes, you must put this furniture music in your home and in your ears. I really was conflicted about it this week and during this conversation, but I think it's going to squeak by into yes for me as well. I do think it's singular and unique, and so many people seem to reference it. And and I think what the thing that I like, though, is that a lot – a lot of thought and work was put in. They did throw a lot of ideas at the wall. And I like records that break bands up. As I mentioned, the original lineup <laughs> That's awesome. dissolved 
immediately. <laughs> now, Arthur Lee continued as love with a bunch of other people and made several more records. And I think at some point even may have toured. But this is considered the definitive lineup of love. This is considered their definitive album. And even though I can't really picture myself listening to it again, I'm certainly I'm not sad I'd listen to it or anything. So, sure, <laughs> give it a spin. What a testimonial! I'm not sad I listened to it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was sad I listened to the spiritualized album. That's part of my life. I can never get back. Man, they're entering our uh, our pantheon of shit bands, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so. Two things remain. Thanks for listening this far. We're going to get our homework soon for next week. But first, I thought I would dive into the old listener mailbag. Really appreciate all the great mail y'all have been sending us. We're a little backed up here. I'm going to issue a quick correction because we love those. And then I'm going to read a piece of listener mail that I think might be the best crafted missive we've received thus far. Oh, I love the mailbag. It's my favorite part of the show. The mail never stops. Here we go. First up, a correction. Aaron from Colorado Springs writes, On episode number 90, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, someone mentioned that there was a song on Beavis and Butthead's soundtrack about Anthony Kiedis slamming his dick in the dirt. It was, I love correct. this is what it they got to. It was actually on the Wayne's World soundtrack. <laughs> and it was a song called Sicka... Mikaniko. I think I'm saying that right. Thank you. Thank you. So we needed I mean, to know that clearly. <laughs> Thank you. The actual line from the song is Shake it, girl, you won't get hurt. I knock my dick into the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, good. dude. He's the Arthur well, Lee of, of the, <laughs> of the right. 80s, 90s. Keep, <laughs> keeping the LA scene alive, you know? This listener goes on to mention that the song was actually the B-side on the Under the Bridge single in certain countries, and that, in fact, on later non-U.S. single cuts of Under the Bridge, Red Hot Chili Peppers had an instrumental song, which we were all hoping for, called Fela's Cock. <laughs> wow. I assume referring to one Fela PT. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, there you have okay. it. Good. So, quick correction, so you can now find that. It's on the playlist. I've added it to the playlist for that episode, or you could look it up on the Wayne's World soundtrack yourself. And now for the listener mail of a different format. This is Chris from San Diego, and he writes, I'm constantly impressed by the lack of in-depth knowledge for a group of professional musicians. (laughs) It's coming in hot. He's coming in hot. Your taste in music is predictably Steely Dan on white bread. That was also the subject of his email, by the way. That is excellent. That's a great subject line. With the exception of Sparks, come out of my house, although most of you fell short there as well. A laudatory exposition on Big Star's thoroughly mediocre debut, Randy Newman, and the softest of critiques for one of the most milquetoast artists of the century, Paul Simon. Then, the juvenile analysis of Dr. John's Grigri, with the exception of one guy and his tweet-length review, my sincerest apologies, I forgot his name, with this grave injustice, I think he's referring to Dr. John's Grigri, with this grave injustice, (laughs) I could no longer be satisfied with yelling at my speakers. (laughs) Certainly, this is a challenging album, as are many artistic statements, but the flaccid curiosity of musicians in the face of this challenge is truly unfortunate. (laughs) 
<laughs> so did we lose a listener? That was so that was so wordy. I don't know what I happened. Listening there. is fine too. We're right. Yeah, first of all, this is the best constructed, just in terms of the words used, the vocab, oh, etc. Yes. Yeah. Bravo. Well, and the tone is very clear. And t- yes. Hey, we said give us your complaints, and I'm very happy Absolutely. to receive this complaint. Now, you're very welcome. Chris closes it out by saying, "That's it. I genuinely enjoy the podcast and your banter, Aww. even if I find your overall taste to be lacking. But who am I? <laughs> he postscript. <laughs> you nailed it with Kid Rock." <laughs> Man, we, we'd had a problem right. if, if redeemed, he disagreed with that. We redeemed it there. <laughs> so I think we're ready to have a beer with this guy. But absolutely, but send us more like that, listeners. Send them on over. Send whatever you want to say. Ask us a question. Make us a, a correction. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us we're right. Or complain about our taste generally at one thousand and one album complaints at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. And now. The moment you've all been waiting for. We're going to get our homework for next week. Tom has shipped the Albinator in dry ice over to my house. <laughs> I've taken it out of its its casing. It's in there with a couple live lobsters. I'm, I'm turning the key now. And next week, we shall be listening to Sam Cook live at the Harlem Square Club. Oh, who's white bread now? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Boosh. It's live. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Love Sam Cooke, but I don't can't say I know this particular recording, so that'll be fun. Yeah, I, uh, nice. I'm in the same boat. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm familiar with this record or, you know, I'm not familiar at all. Yeah, I know the greatest hits. He's a great singer. Yeah, he probably a lot of standards. Tunes. Where is it from? It's live from where? Harlem Square Club. Oh, that's promising. Well, stay tuned for that, listeners. Start listening now. Join us next week to discuss Sam Cooke in depth. We appreciate you hanging on this long. We look forward to seeing you again. And for 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Rob. I'm Alan. I'm Adam. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Boosh.